I am thankful for God's word, that it is true and trustworthy. It is our only source and our only standard for what we believe and what we do. So we turn to Acts chapter 4 in faith. We turn to Acts chapter 4 seeking the help of the Holy Spirit, the author of Scripture, that he might um, help us to be grown and to understand. Hear now the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Praise God. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. And there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than forty years old. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Let's pray. And so now, Lord, we pray that you would clear our hearts and our minds, that you would till the soil of our hearts to be receptive. Grant anointing, O Lord, we ask, to the preacher and hearer alike. And it's in the name of Jesus that we ask it. Amen. Do you remember the game Whack-A-Mole? You remember this, this game? I remember it from Chuck E. Cheese. And it's this console, 
in which there are these holes and there's this plastic mole that comes up, it pops up. And you have this, this padded mallet, after you've inserted your $20 to play this game, this padded mallet that is tied to the machine so you cannot use it on your siblings. And your job is to whack that mole, hitting it on its head, causing it to pop down. Now at the beginning of the game, you're thinking, I got this thing. Right, because there's one mole that slowly pops up and you whack it and it goes down. And then about a second later, another one comes up. And then, but, but then the game goes faster and faster until by the end of the game, you've called your buddies over there. They're using their hands and between the three of y'all, y'all cannot whack all the moles as they come up. It's impossible because they're all popping up at the same time. You know, the Jewish authorities must have felt like they were playing whack-a-mole. See, seven weeks before the day of Pentecost, they had crucified Jesus, right? They had whacked that mole. They did not, they did not accept Jesus' claim to divinity or to the fact that he was the Messiah, and so they killed him. But then this, this mole that, that whom they had whacked, it, he popped right back up and, and literally, right? He, he rose from the dead. And essentially, this forced these people whom John and Peter are standing before. Do, do you know what they did when he rose? They, they went and bribed the Roman guards, the Roman soldiers, to tell, them, to tell others that the disciples had come and stolen the body. They thought they had dealt with that mole. When Christ ascended and returned to heaven, surely they felt like they had won the game, that the game had run its course, that the time was over, and they weren't looking to put any more money in the machine. But then the day of Pentecost rolled around, right? How troubling that must have been to the Jewish authorities, to hear the unlearned apostles and believers speak in foreign tongues, to see the, the flames of fire upon their head as they had heard the sound of the mighty rushing wind, and then to see 3,000 people become believers that day, and then to see them publicly baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How troubling that must have been. Well, as we continue with the book of Acts, the moles, they keep a multiplying. And the game has begun to speed up faster and faster as more and more people became Christians. And then there was this, right? A 40-year-old lame man whom everybody knew. This was not an obscure man. This is a guy that was out in front of the gate called Beautiful every day, asking for alms, sitting on his cushion, who had no use of his legs. Everybody knew this man. And here he was, walking and praising and leaping God. Uh, excuse me, walking and leaping and praising God, right? And, and then, and then, everybody had followed the apostles, Peter and John, and, and were now on the authorities' home turf, within the temple compound in the area called Solomon's Portico. And they were preaching to thousands of people in the name of Jesus and specifically about the resurrection of the dead. Things were getting out of control. Enough was enough. More moles needed to be whacked. And that's where we pick up our text today. 
There is a new season that begins with Acts chapter 4 in the history of the early church. Up until this point, there has been no official pushback from the Jewish authorities, but that all changes now. And we're going to see it increasingly, increasingly, increasingly as we go through the book of Acts. But by the end, God will have used the persecution to take the gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth, fulfilling Acts chapter 1 verse 8, this command that the apostles would be his witnesses. The book of Acts ends with Paul in jail, in the center of the world, in Rome itself. This morning, we're going to look at three things. We're going to see that the gospel is powerful, that the gospel is offensive, and finally, that the gospel and its progress cannot be stopped. The gospel is powerful, the gospel is offensive, and the progress of the gospel cannot be stopped. What is the gospel? It's a word we throw around a lot. But, but what do we mean? We, we can say there's both a simple and a complex answer here. It is simple enough for the smallest child to understand and respond in faith and be saved, and yet it is complex enough that theologians will spend all of their careers plumbing just the shallow end of what the gospel is. We can say there's a big picture answer here as all of the cosmos will be remade when Christ comes again. The gospel is more than just our individual salvation. It is the salvation of God's people and the remaking of all things. But individually, as we talk about sharing the gospel, it is the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners like you and me. Right? You can't do the gospel Why is that? Because the gospel is good news. It is a message. In fact, the word gospel means good news. It's not an action or a work. We might be able to display the response or to transform life because of the gospel in our lives, but we can't act it out because it is a message. What is the good news? On a personal level, I love how it is defined in 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. It means that, that reconciliation and forgiveness is possible, that Christ has paid for the sins of His people on the cross. God came into this world to seek and save the lost like you and me, we who deserve death and hell and damnation forever. These things He took upon Himself on the cross, bearing them, paying the penalty for our sins, so that we who respond to the good news, the gospel message, in faith and repentance can be saved. This is what the disciples here had been proclaiming the week, our week before in Acts 3. We see Peter say in Acts 3 verse 19, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. What good news. See, Paul's actually going to use the word power in reference to the gospel. Romans 1 verse 16 through 17 is going to tell us this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It is how we are saved. The gospel message achieves the purpose for which God sends it out. And we see that purpose in spades from last week. See, there was a great response to the preaching of John and Peter. 
We see that in verse 4 of our text this morning. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. If you want to talk about the power of the gospel, on the first day, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 believers were saved. There have been people being saved along the way, and then when we get to this text, we're told that 5,000 men, heads of households, have been saved. Many commentators think by the time we get to Acts chapter 8, there are probably about 20,000 Christians in Jerusalem. 20,000. Talk about the power of the gospel. The crowds had seen the miraculous healing of an old man, well, old man in his day, lame from birth. Then they had heard that it was because he had believed in Jesus. The kingdom of God was breaking forth into their midst, and the Holy Spirit was working in the hearts of a great many and caused them to have faith in Jesus. Have you responded to the gospel in this way? But here's the thing, that while the gospel is our only hope, the gospel is offensive. Why do I say that? The gospel is offensive. Well, here we see that it is offensive to those who are outwardly religious. Who, to those who are trusting in their outward religious ob- observation. Their observance of the outward religious rites. It's offensive to them because it says we can't save ourselves. We, we see this in verse 1. Peter and John are preaching to the mass of people about Jesus and the offer of the gospel, the resurrection. And, they, and there's this group that finally swoop in and arrest these men. It's not just a few people either. We're told here that there are a lot of people represented. That The priests are there. The captain of the temple police is there. The captain of the temple police had so much power, he was only second in command to the chief priest. Not only that, but the ruling party of the Sadducees, they were there. You know, essentially, these, many of these people would have been the same people who had gone to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. And here, having put Jesus to death, seeking to put an end to the spreading of his name, <clears throat> they have to do it again because the gospel is powerful and it is at work. Now, they can't have a trial right away because it's after the evening sacrifice. After the evening sacrifice, the gates of the temple were closed and shut, and the Sanhedrin, by their own law, could not meet until after the first sacrifice of the next day. The Sanhedrin was the governing council of the Jews. It was made up of 71 people. You had the ruling elders, excuse me, the rulers, the elders, and the scribes who made up this group. And they were led by the 71st member, the high priest or the chief priest, who served as the president and moderator. They would meet in an amphitheater. And the people on display here, Peter and John and the lame man who was with them, they would be on the ground floor, surrounded by 71 of the greatest leaders of all of Judaism. And this is not a friendly chat. Right? They didn't gather these men after keeping them in jail the night before just to get some good buddy time. They were going to examine them. They know full well that Peter and John had been preaching Christ, and it was through the name of Jesus that this lame man was healed. They're no dummies. You can imagine there are all sorts of, of backroom chats overnight to ascertain the facts of what had happened. 
But now they begin the legal proceedings to discover the facts. And notice they avoid using the name of Jesus at all costs. They know who these people are. They know what they're proclaiming. But they never once say the name of Jesus. Why would they be offended by Jesus and the message of the gospel? Think about who these people are. The first group we're introduced to are the priests. What was the duty of the priests? One of the duties of the priests was to teach the people of God. And here were these uneducated, common, Galilean, backwoods fishermen without any credentials teaching in the temple courts. And they were teaching something that was contrary to what they were teaching. They were, they were very threatened by this. They were also teaching that Jesus was the last sacrifice. And they could point to the smoke of the sacrifices going up offered by the priests. This was very offensive. Think about the Sadducees. We're told they were there. They were the religious liberals who only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't accept any teaching regarding the Messiah and especially the resurrection. Here were these apostle upstarts teaching that Jesus was the Messiah and that he had been raised from the dead. So what does Peter say? Does he soft pedal? Does he pull punches? Look at verse 10. Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. He makes it real clear who's responsible for the death of Jesus. Death of the Christ, the Messiah. And he also makes it clear that Jesus was raised from the dead. And he makes it clear that Jesus is still at work. And this is the one who healed the lame man. But then he puts it really where the goats can eat it. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Peter quotes Psalm 118.22 here. And it was a psalm that was sung at Passover as the pilgrims headed to Jerusalem. And he's going to apply it straight to the most important religious leaders of Israel. So here's what's going on in that verse. Okay, so God's people are compared to a building. The leader of God's people are compared to builders. Jesus is compared to a cornerstone. The cornerstone, and some translations may say capstone. The cornerstone is the most important stone. It was laid first, and it was what everything else was squared off on. Without a cornerstone, the building could not stand. And so these people, the ones who are supposed to be building God's people, they had rejected the most important stone of all. They had rejected Jesus, despised him, disowned him, rejected and killed the author of life. The gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive. And here, as we see, it's offensive to those who trust in themselves for salvation. Here were Israel's greatest teachers, but they were teaching a lie from Satan that salvation came through good works. They misrepresented the law of God. Instead of teaching that it showed us our sin, they were teaching that it showed us how to make up for sin. Instead of teaching that it showed us how to glorify God in our lives, they were teaching it in such a way that you no longer needed God in your life because you could do it on your own. The gospel is offensive to these people 
because it declares a solution to a problem that they did not recognize. See, they didn't recognize that they needed saving. They were doing just fine on their own. But the gospel is also offensive because it means that salvation is exclusive. Now, now, when I say that, I don't mean that it's just for white or black or rich or poor or citizen or alien or Americans or Chinese. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that it is only through one person, the Lord Jesus Christ and none other. Look at what Peter tells those who have been trusting in themselves for salvation and had rejected Jesus in verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Have you ever used a double negative in a sentence? You know what I mean by that? Like using more than one negative in a sentence and it, and it actually changes the meaning of the sentence. Right? So if I say, I'm not going to do that, what does it mean? It means I'm not going to do that. But if I say, I'm not not going to do that, what does it mean? It means I have to do it. Well, in Greek, the more negatives you pile on, the stronger it is. And here what, here's what this text literally says. And there is not in another no one salvation. And there is not in another no one salvation. Think about how offensive this would have been to the members of the Sanhedrin. The only way to be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you don't accept Jesus Christ, then you do not accept the God that they think they've been serving. By rejecting Jesus, they've rejected the God of their fathers. It's offensive because it says we must be saved, meaning that we need salvation. And it's only through the one who is the, the way, the truth, and the life. The one who was dead and now is alive forevermore. It's offensive and exclusive because it means that anyone who does not accept Christ will go to hell. And it means that every other religion and all, their, all those who follow it that is a path to hell rather than to heaven. That is offensive today, isn't it? There's one way of salvation. The gospel is offensive. But let's think about this in context. While this is offensive to our flesh, is it nearly as offensive as our sin is to God? Well, the gospel seems to be offensive to our flesh. Is it as offensive as the murder of his beloved son? Well, the gospel seems offensive to a world that is dead and dying. Is it as offensive as his covenant people, the physical sons of Abraham, rejecting their Messiah? Is it as offensive as our sins against God? Instead, God was willing to become man. And while our modern sensibilities might seem offended by this exclusive claim of salvation, He is the one who took the penalty for our offenses, for our transgressions, for our iniquities. And then the offer of the gift is handed out, is held out to everyone who believes. Did you see that this text says that it is the name that is given not earned, not achieved, not worked for, 
It is the name given to us for salvation. A wonderful, fantastic gift. Is the gospel offensive when we see our need for salvation? No. Because it is a balm to the soul. It is life to a dead heart. We've seen that the gospel is powerful. We've seen that the the gospel is offensive. Finally, we see that the progress of the gospel cannot be stopped. The progress of the gospel cannot be stopped. Having heard Peter and John, what's the reaction of the members of the Sanhedrin? Well, they don't really know what to do at first, right? Here are these uneducated, unlettered people speaking in an unhindered, bold way. And not just before a small group of people, but a large group of people, the most important people in the entire Jewish world. It's a combination of the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch, all wrapped in one. And so they, uh, they throw them out, they deliberate, and they come back and say, hey, you can't do this anymore. You can't speak in the name of Jesus. Here then begins persecution of the church. But you know, while Christians can be put in chains, 2 Timothy tells us the word of God is not bound. While Christians can be murdered, Matthew 16 says, the gates of hell should not prevail against the church. While Christians can be tortured, we as Christians, according to Matthew 5, are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. John 16 tells us that while in the world we will have tribulations, but... Take heart, Jesus has overcome the world. And if we are to die, if we are to lose everything, Romans 8 tells us that I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, anything present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The progress of the gospel cannot be stopped. But there is a call to obey here as well. See, when they came back and said, you can't speak in the name of Jesus anymore. You can't talk about the resurrection. What did Peter and John say? Verse 18 through 20. And that they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Here is the command, that when the law of the land violates the law of God, we have a duty rather to obey God than man, even when it costs us. I don't mean by the way those things we hold culturally dear. I'm not talking about the kinds of rifles we like to have or even the size of the magazines for said rifles. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about on a gospel level, right? I refer to any legislation or any movement within a culture that would seek to impede God's call for us to live godly lives and be lights for the Lord. The world may legislate and try to legislate the marginalization of the gospel. But my friends, there is no power on earth, above the earth or under the earth, that can stop the power and the progress of the gospel. It might become costlier, but it has long been said, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Not even legislation, not even legislation that seeks to redefine gender or marriage in our land, not even it 
can stop the progress of the gospel. Our blessing, our identity is not in a political party. And soon, perhaps, our blessing might be in persecution. But not even the Equality Act. Not even any legislation. Not even the strongest push can stop the power and the progress of the gospel. And there may be a cost more soon to holding to what the Bible teaches. But you know, the gospel hasn't just started being offensive. It always has been. But nothing can stop it. Because our king is on the move. And we know how it ends. Jesus wins. Jesus and his church, we win. And we yearn for that day where we see the object of the gospel. We are fully transformed by the good news when we finally behold our Savior face to face. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the good news is such good news. We thank you that there is salvation for vile, wretched sinners like this preacher. O oh Lord, may the gospel be upon our lips, bold upon our lips, in the face of any pushback. We thank you, O oh Lord, that you are in control and that you are in charge. And we do pray for boldness. And we pray, Father, that the gospel will continue to go forth. For we know nothing can stop it. Not even the gates of hell itself. In the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen.